Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. 76 years after the end of World War II, that singular event continues to capture our interest and fascination. And there's a reason for that. The war combined two greatly compelling things, the epic historic sweep of large-scale battles and the personal stories of the individual young men who fought in them with determined resolve and humble heroism. My guest has written a book that deftly combines both of these elements into a thoroughly memorable tale. His name is Jim Sullivan, and he's the author of the book Unsinkable, Five Men in the Indomitable Run of the USS Plunkett. Today on the show, Jim shares the story of the Plunkett, the only Navy ship to participate in every Allied invasion in the European theater, as well as the stories of a group of men who served on this destroyer. Jim then explains the role the Navy's destroyers played during World War II, before getting into the backstories of some of the men who served aboard the Plunkett. From there, we delve into the escorting and landing operations the Plunkett was involved in, leading up to its arrival along the Italian coast of Anzio, where a dozen German bombers bore down the ship in one of the most savage attacks of the war, and how the ship yet lived to fight another day. And we enter a conversation with what happened to the men Jim profiled, how the war affected their lives, and how their lives affected Jim. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash unsinkable. All right, Jim Sullivan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Brett. So you got a new book out called Unsinkable, Five Men in the Indomitable Run of the USS Plunkett. So what led you in doing this deep dive in the history of this World War II destroyer, the USS Plunkett, and some of the men who served on it? Well, it, it started uh, with a family trip. I was planning to Italy in, in 2016. We were going to go to Rome and Florence and Venice, and we were thinking about a side trip to Pompeii, but logistically from Rome, it's a big day trip. So uh, much closer and of more interest to my kids were, were the beaches at Anzio. And Anzio was also the site of a, of a, a famous battle during the Second World War, and two of my grandfather's brothers were involved in that. And there was this one story that my great-uncle Frank Gallagher used to tell. He was one of five Gallagher brothers. Four of them went away to the war. And Frank used to tell the story his whole life about this reunion that he had with his brother, John, who was in the Navy right before they both went into Anzio. Frank was a medic in the Fifth Army. And right before they went into Anzio uh, on this amphibious landing, Frank realized that his brother's ship, the USS Plunkett, a Navy destroyer, was part of the task force that would be taking the landing craft in. There were 36,000 men going in. So Frank steals out of camp. He's got a jerry can half filled with red wine. And knowing Frank, I'm, I'm sure he was hauling off it all the way into Naples. He wasn't supposed to go in there. They had typhoid. They said stay out, but he uh, wanted to get in. And he gets in and he goes to the flagship and they tell him that, yeah, well, the Plunkett's in the area. They wouldn't tell him where. So Frank jumps into this little bumboat, a wooden boat, has this Italian boatman 
row him out among these harbored out Navy ships. And he's looking for the profile of a destroyer and it's hull number 431. And he finds it. And so he has this, this Italian boatman row him up to the fantail, which is about four and a half, five feet above over the waterline. And he clamors up on board uninvited, you know, defying all protocol with his jerry can of wine. And the ship is coming to general quarters because it's dusk, which is the most perilous time of day for a Navy ship. You've got bombers coming in, the roadstead at that time of day. And he thinks it's for him. He thinks that they've turned out because he's done something wrong. Well, he did do something wrong. And the, 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 the captain comes down uh, from the bridge and is chewing him out. And as that's happening, one of the, the gunners on the ship is looking over, you know, the apron of his gun tub, and he, he sees this guy getting chewed up by the cow. He says, geez, that looks like my brother. And then he realizes it is his brother, and he runs to the fantail and explains what's going on to the captain. And, well, they had their reunion. So Frank told that story his whole life. In my family, we'd heard it, each of us, so many times. And and when I started heading to Italy in 2016, I, I thought, you know, I should, uh, I know very little about this story except what Frank said. Maybe it's time to find out more. And so what I liked about this book is I've read a lot of books about World War II, but they usually have been about land warfare. So, you know, the 101 tank warfare. I've read a lot of books about air warfare during World War II. And this is like one of the few books I've read about naval warfare. So I, got, I learned quite a bit. So before we get into the story of the Plunkett and your great uncles, can you give us some history behind the, you know, the destroyers in the U.S. Navy? Like, first of all, like what, what makes a destroyer a destroyer? Sure, sure. Well, it's, it's one of five iconic Navy ships. There's the, the battleship, the aircraft carrier, the submarine, uh, the cruiser, and the destroyer. And the destroyer is about, you know, the size of a destroyer is 1,650 tons. That was the size of the Plunkett. It displaced 1,630 tons of, of water. Now, a battleship is, you know, its displacement is 38,000 tons. So it's like 20 times larger than a destroyer. And, and the destroyer's job was really to shepherd other ships, whether they be in convoy, liberty ships, merchant ships that are crossing, you know, the Atlantic or the Mediterranean to, to supply ground forces, or it's to work along the outer edges of a task force as they're going into an amphibious landing. There were six of them in North Africa and in Europe during the Second World War. And they were fighting, you know, submarines below the water. They were fighting, you know, aircraft above. And to a much lesser extent, they were engaged in surface combat on the water. So that's that's the destroyer. It's um, it's built like to go fast. The hull on a, on a destroyer is only three-eighths of an inch thick. Now, they call them tin cans for that reason. On a battleship, you know, the armored plates are, you know, it's a, a foot thick. So these ships that are about as long as a football field in, in most of its end zones, um, they could really move out. I mean, 30, 37, 38 knots, which is 43, 44 miles per hour is, is their, their top speed, what they call flank speed. And that's about as fast as a racehorse goes. So, you know, think of this ship that's as long as a football field moving that fast. At flank speed. And there were occasions uh, during the war when the punk punket uh, was moving out that fast. So that's, that's the basics on a destroyer. I, I like to think of them as, as, you know, sort of the grunt on point in the, the jungle. They were always first in harm's way, sort of the Minuteman behind the stone wall. And, you know, there's a, a certain romance that, that goes with a destroyer that, that maybe isn't there with, uh, with the battleship or the carrier. So they're distinctive. They think of themselves as, you know, the, the, the men, the sailors who are on destroyers think of themselves as, as destroyer men, as, as something of a breed apart. What sort of weaponry does a destroyer typically have? Well, during the Second World War, and the Plunkett in particular had four five-inch guns. Destroyers generally had five 
five-inch guns, but they always had problems with, uh, they were top-heavy. So the Plunkett removed one of its five-inch guns and put a 1.1-inch gun mount in place. It takes a dozen men, four barrels on a 1.1-inch gun. So you've got four big five-inch guns, and they run up and down the center line of the ship. You've got the the 1.1-inch gun, which is essentially on the center line of the ship. And then all around the edges of the ship, you've got a half a dozen. There were six 20-millimeter guns. And the five-inch guns would go after the dive bombers and the aircraft, the high flyers that were really far away. And the 20 millimeters would go after torpedo bombers or, or aircraft that would, would sweep in low because their range wasn't as far. Do you have any idea like how many men typically served on a destroyer? Like a rough idea? Yeah, there were generally 250 men. And I think that was the number on Plunkett at its greatest. They also were the flagship for their squadron. There were seven other ships or six other ships in their squadron. And so you had a complement of six junior officers and the squadron commander. So about 250 enlisted men and then, uh, and then a dozen officers. And what was the destroyer's role during World War II? So like, let's talk about like at the beginning and then how did that change as the war progressed? Well, you know, in the beginning, they did a lot of hunter-killer work. That was the term they used when they went after submarines at the beginning of the war. Before we were really in the war, there was the phony war where the Germans were in the North Atlantic taking out merchant ships. Um, We were trying to supply Great Britain with materiel before we got into it through the Lend-Lease program. So there was a lot of convoy work uh, early on in the war. And they were doing a lot of, you know, with sonar, looking for submarines. Later in the war, uh, carrier-based aircraft became a more effective means of getting at submarines. But early on, it was the destroyer. And when you think of some of those old World War II movies, not too long ago, I saw Das Boot again, and there was nothing a submariner wanted to see less in his periscope than a destroyer, you know, plowing a V right at them. So that's, um, especially in the Atlantic theater, that's, that's what they were doing early on in the war. Yeah, I guess uh, that Tom Hanks movie, Greyhound, that's kind of like what they did, protecting merchant marines. That's right, yeah. They, I think they were escorting a, a convoy of liberty ships. Right. Yeah, and I just watched Das Boot for the first time this week, and it's intense. It's a really good movie. It is. It's a really good movie. So how many, do we know how many destroyers there were like at the peak of World War II? I think 514 destroyers went into the war in both the Atlantic and the Pacific, and uh, seven, 71 of them were lost to the likes of torpedoes and aerial assault, and especially in the Pacific. You know, the, the Pacific was much more the Navy's war than the Atlantic or the Mediterranean. And it's in the Pacific at the likes of Guadalcanal and Lady Gulf, where you had, you know, you had those real fire away Flanagan's where the ships were, I mean, battleships were, were going toe to toe with 14 inch shells. That didn't happen in the Atlantic. I mean, the Pacific was all about, you know, carriers, aircraft, and, uh, and destroyers were pivotal and critical in the Pacific because they had to watch out for submarines around the fringes of the carrier task forces. In the Atlantic, it was much more a matter of destroyers and cruisers. And the battleship by this time really it was, was almost obsolete. All right. So your book focuses on a few of the men who served on the Plunkett. There's your great uncle, of course, but who are the other men you decided to focus on? Why did you pick, why did you focus on those guys? Well, you know, before I knew it was a book, I, I there was that family trip I, I mentioned to, to Italy. And, and I, I, before we went over there, I began to wonder, you know, knowing that we were going to go to Anzio, I began to wonder, are any of the men who were on that ship 
still with us. It just seems so improbable. This is 2016. So I jump on the internet and I, I start looking and I, I run into a, a website for their last reunion in 2011. The USS Plunkett had had its last reunion. There was a, a phone number for, for a man at the bottom of the page. I just rang him out of the blue and he had been on the Plunkett during the war, but he came on after Anzio. And we had a really nice talk. And I asked him if, if he knew of any of the men who had been on the ship at Anzio, were they still around? And he said, well, yeah, there's this one, there's this one fella named Jim Feltz, really nice guy. And uh, I'm sure he'll talk to you. So he, he gives me Jim's two phone numbers, his cell phone and, and his home phone. And I, I call him on a Saturday morning. I catch him on a, uh, he's at a home show, which I, I think is just great. He's 91 years old at a home show. <laughs> he's going to do a kitchen renovation. He's not giving up this guy. And so we start talking, Jim and I, and I'm, I tell him I'm just interested in the Plunkett. And for about five or six minutes, we're talking. And, and he says, well, look, would you give me a call back tomorrow? We can pick it up at, at home. I'll be happy to talk to you as long as you like. And I said, I would. And I, I told him before I hung up, I said, I just want to let you know, my uncle was on that ship. I have a personal connection and his name's John J. Gallagher. And I hear this silence on the other end of the phone. And I'm thinking, well, here's Here's a man who's in his 90s trying to remember back 70 years, 250 men. He doesn't want to disappoint me because I'd heard that from other people. And then I think my calls drop. I look at my phone and it wasn't. And, and, and when Jim comes back to me, there's a, there's a smile in his voice as big as the moon. And he says, Johnny Gallagher was a very good buddy of mine. And I knew from that moment, you know, that, that more was going to have to be done with this story. So, so it began it began really with that phone call from with Jim Feltz. I mean, I just pivoted. I was standing in my, my driveway. I made this phone call. It was just curiosity. And I think by the time I had hung up the phone, I, I knew that I was going to have to do something significant with this, with this story. All right. So Jim was sort of the, the guy, sort of the linchpin to this. Like he was able to give you this firsthand account. And one of the men that you talked about in the book, and I'm sure Jim talked to you a lot, was about the commander of the Plunkett. The Plunkett had a few commanders, but the one you focus on the book was this guy named Edward Burke. What's his story? What was his background? And how did that prepare him for the leadership of the Plunkett? Sure. Yeah. Ed, Eddie Burke, He what a character. He was he was born in 1907, just outside Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, son of grandson of, of a coal miner and the son of a man who began work in the coal mines and then came out of the mines, became semi-professional, but who never moved his family out of that neighborhood. So so Eddie Burke grew up fighting all the time. That's what he did. And it was actually a, a Grantland Rice, the renowned sports writer, once wrote a sports-like column about Eddie Burke and, and writes about his youth. This is back in the 1920s. So So Burke, he gets an appointment to the Naval Academy. He's in the class of 1929. Starts boxing as soon as he gets to the academy or continues fighting as soon as he gets to the academy. And he was a light heavyweight in his senior year uh, in 1929. He loses the National Light Heavyweight Collegiate Championship to this guy O'Malley from MIT. So at the same time that he's, you know, he's, he's boxing, he's also playing football. And he's one of only just a handful of men who became All-American from the, the midshipmen on the academy's football team. So, in fact, they played at Soldier Field in 1928 against Newt Rockney's Ramblers before they were called the Fighting Irish. And it, the sports crowd was 110,000 people. It was the largest group of spectators that had ever gathered in the history of the world for a sporting event up until that time. There's this great photo of Ed Burke staring down this other, the captain of the, uh, of the Ramblers. And so Burke had this. He, he was a guy who knew how to play offense and defense at the same time. 
And, you know, both of those skills were, were going to be necessary at Anzio, where he had to play offense and defense, you know, for the course of that, that 25 minute run with the, with the German Luftwaffe. Well, the way you describe, you know, his relationship with his men, they then like, he wasn't like the nicest captain. Uh, they've had other commanders that they liked a lot more. This guy, Berg, was a little tougher. He was, yeah. And, and, and he followed the captain of the Plunkett who preceded him was Lewis Miller from Texas, who ran what Jack Simpson, one of the five men at the heart of my book, he called the, he said that Lewis Miller, Captain Miller ran a happy ship. And I think that was a Navy term that they used back, back in the day. A happy ship was a ship where you had a really good, well-respected commander, commander who kept his men well-fed. I think that was the, the, the principal attribute of a, of a commander of a happy ship was that he, he, he got good food for his guys. And Burke, uh, Jackson always said he was an incredible wartime commander, but he did not run a happy ship. They all respected him, but he was at the same time a man who, who broke no discord, who brought boxing gloves onto the plunket and, and who would take his shirt off on the fantail and say, look, my shirt's off. My gloves are on. Anybody who wants to go toe to toe with me, please step up. Nothing will be said after the and I think he did he did a lot of sparring. But at the end of the day, they they respected him to no end. And it was a remarkable journey that Burke had with him. Another one of the veterans of the Plunkett that you got to talk to in person was this guy named Ken Brown. What's his story and how did he end up on the Plunkett? Right. Yeah. So Ken is from Glen Ellen, Illinois, not far from Chicago. His father was a typewriter, royal typewriter salesman. And and they were middle-class family, fairly well-to-do. His father bought him a new car when he turned 16 or 17 years old. And, and Ken was the kind of guy who was making as much as he could of what it meant to be a kid in the 1930s. He, he, he loved to drive his car, to drive fast. He loved parties. He loved boozing it up as a kid. Girls, the whole thing, music. When you look at pictures of him in the 1930s, you, you can almost read from, from his, you know, the smirk in his face that, that he, was, he was up to a lot of no good. And, you know, horse races. He loved the horse races. And his father decided him. He, Ken's got no plan for his, his future. And this is Ken telling me all this. But his father does. And his father decides that Ken should go to the, the Naval Academy. He's a smart kid. Ken is, and didn't work, he said, very hard at it, but he was smart enough. And he got an appointment to the Naval Academy, class of, of 1942. And so he gets to the academy, and it's the same thing. You know, he, he, he and some, some other guys, they, they carved an illicit room into, a, uh, into Bancroft Hall where they were living their, their first year, and they'd have this little private drinking chamber. You know, it was those, those are the sorts of stories that Ken tells about his time at the academy. And so he's in the class of 1942, and in the fall of 1941, as, as the war seemed imminent, you know, the U-boats are causing havoc all up and down the eastern seaboard of, of the United States. And, you know, it's only a matter of time now before we're going to get into it. And so the Academy bumps up its graduation from June to February, and then Pearl Harbor on December 7th. And they, they bump up the graduation again to December 19th, 1941. So Ken, thinking that the war was going to be really active in the Atlantic and in the Mediterranean. He had put in for an assignment for the Atlantic, but then after Pearl Harbor, it became clear that the Navy's greater mission was going to be in the Pacific. But he's, you know, on his way to the Atlantic now. He goes home for the holidays, and in January, he took a train from Chicago to to Boston and reported for duty on the Plunkett. The story that I enjoyed the most following was, you know, Jim Feltz's story. 
So tell us, we'll talk about what happened. Like there's this epic battle that happened that the, the Plunkett took part in. But before that, what was Jim like? What was his life like before joining the Navy? Like, I mean, how old was he when he signed up? Why did he join the Navy, et cetera? Right. Well, Jim, you know, he got his first year into high school and then into his second year. And he just decided that high school wasn't for him. One of his good friends broke his leg and lost his job at the local five and dime. Jim called Mr. Siegel and said, can I have his job? And he said, "Okay." Jim's mother signed the paper. He got out of school and he went to work as a stock boy. This is in a little town just outside St. Louis, Overland, Missouri. His father had been a skilled, semi-skilled laborer, but it had an accident, was crippled. And, you know, Jim lived in a house with his brothers and sisters and their wives. It was crowded. He slept on a cot in a living room. There wasn't a lot of money. And he's working in this five and dime. And, and one day, he's 16 years old, and this girl walks into the store, and he's, he's smitten. And she doesn't think much of him. But her aunt, who is only six years older than she is, her name is Betty Niemiller, and her aunt is named Mickey. She thinks the world of Jim, because he was essentially just a kid of great integrity who grew into a man of great integrity. And, and she wants you know, her niece to connect with Jim. And Betty agrees and she goes out. They I read a lot of the letters between them and she was really mean to him. And she admitted as much later during the early days, but he hung in there. She loved nothing to do nothing so much as dance, you know, swing dancing and jitterbug and the imperial style. And Jim couldn't dance a lick and wouldn't even try. He was just, he said, too bashful and he'd never do it. So the, the deck was sort of stacked against him. Not only that, but Betty's father, you know, while he, he liked Jim well enough, but he, he had higher aspirations for his daughter. And so, you know, the, the deck was stacked against Jim. And now here comes the war. And he's in the five and dime. He's, he's trying to make this romance stick. And as Jim once told me, he said, you know, the, the war sort of swept down Main Street in our town. And it just swept us up all along. And he went into the Navy because, you know, guys were telling him that, you know, the Navy is where you debunk. And, and you get hot food and you don't have to sleep on the ground. And, and, and that made sense to him. So that's, that's how in, in April of, of 1942, he was, he was swept into, the, into service. But during his service, like him and Betty, they stayed in touch. They did, you know, and, and it's, it was remarkable. You know, I, I, I had asked Jim early on if, you know, if, uh, if they were writing as, as everybody was writing back, back then. And, uh, he said, uh, he said they, they had, and I went out to visit him several times and, uh, I asked if he'd ever saved any of the letters. And he says, yeah, I, I think I've, I've got a few of them around here. I haven't looked at them in years, Betty wanted me to destroy them, but I always save them. And he takes me into this closet in his house and he opens this cardboard box. There's literally hundreds of letters from the war. And, you know, if by that time I was writing and researching and it was just a gold mine. And I asked him if I could if I could read some of them. And he picked up the whole box and, and said, here, have at it. So I got this really interesting relationship of this romance uh, that began in, in 1941 between these two kids. She was 15 at the time. He was 16 and that ran all the way through the war. And I mean, it's priceless stuff. I've, I've persuaded Jim that it, at some point, you know, those letters need to, to go into an archive or a museum uh, or, or somewhere. So, so yeah, I, I, you know, that was just fascinating to get that kind of uh, information, access to that. I'll admit, that was one of my favorite. I, I was like wondering, okay, are Jim and Betty going to make it? Like I was <laughs> throughout the whole book. Because I mean, there's this great picture of them. I mean, just a great looking couple. Uh, you, you, want, you wanted to wake it work for them. So we'll, we'll see if it works for them here in a bit. So these guys get on the plunket. 
what sort of duty did the Plunkett do early on in the war? Well, early in the war, there was a lot of training to be done up and down the, the, the eastern seaboard. I mean, you've got what the Germans called the, the happy time. There was a happy time and a second happy time because there was a, a lot of initial resistance. I think that's, that's sometimes forgotten that, you know, we didn't plow into the Second World War guns blazing. There was a, there was a lot of resistance to our getting involved in another European war. And, and President Roosevelt was, was biding the country's time and, and reading the mood of the country. He knew that he had to lead from behind. And, and there had to be, the American public had to be persuaded this, this was something that we had to do. Well, he got that event precipitously at Pearl Harbor. But even leading up before Pearl Harbor, the U-boats were prowling up and down the East Coast of the United States. And businesses up and down the East Coast were reluctant to follow the dim light ordinances and to, to black out the cities and the coastal communities. Because if you're a merchant ship and you're coming up, the eastern seaboard from the Gulf with, uh, you know, with, with the tanker of, of oil. If, if the lights of a city are behind you, well, your ship is silhouetted by that city. And the Germans loved it. And that's why they called it the happy time, because it was just so easy to, to take down merchant ships. So there was a lot of that happening up and down the East Coast. So the Plunkett is there in the early part of the war, and they're up and down and into the Caribbean. And then they started on the convoys after uh, Lend-Lease came into play early on, before we actually even got into the war. The destroyers were called upon to help transport the material from the United States to supply Great Britain. I mean, they were, they were um, you know, after the Battle of Britain and the Blitz, they were hurting pretty badly. We had not yet got into the war and, uh, and they were down to, you know, bare minimum. And so the convoys were resupplying Britain. So the Plunkett is back and forth to the UK and to Scotland, um, which is where the, the convoys often ended up. And it was only, it wasn't until November of 1942 that these guys waded into the war in a, in a meaningful way. Operation Torch in November of 1942 was the first transatlantic convoy that, that transported men from the United States to North Africa. This is where we were going to prosecute the war first. And the Plunkett was in on this first, was part of this first task force in the second wave. And uh, they ended up in, in Casablanca, of all places. In fact, on the day that the movie Casablanca, the Bogart and Bergman movie came out, it premiered at the Hollywood Theater in New York. And the Plunkett was, was in Casablanca on that day that it, it premiered. There was no Rick's Cafe of course. But Jim, I've got some interesting pictures. Jim and my great uncle John Gallagher were out on Liberty that day. They went into a photographer's store, a studio and took all these great pictures with locals and foreign sailors. And so they were, they were happy to get into it. You know, they were, they were bored in the beginning. They really wanted to get into it. They were desperate to get into it. And this was how they were commemorating their, their first uh, invasion. Wasn't much of an invasion for them because they came in in the second wave all the major fighting had been done. They were even calling Casablanca the ice cream front at that point. But those, those things would change for them soon enough. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. 
Suit started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. 
masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. When did the Plunkett see its like first real action during the war? So that was, let's see now. So this is Casablanca is November of 42. And once we had brought all of our, the allies had, had come into North Africa, engaged Rommel, you know, there were months of fighting before we finally, we finally took charge there. I think it was all the way into May or so before North Africa was, was settled. Plunkett had gone back to the States and went back to Casablanca, back to the States again. And then finally in May of 43, they went back over to North Africa. And, and now that, that, that North Africa has been relatively pacified by the Allies, it's, it's time to turn their attention to Europe. And in July, the Allies planned the invasion of Sicily. I think it was July 9th. And Plunkett is part of that first wave in now on this invasion at, at Jela. There were three landing spots on the island of Sicily. It was eventually going to take the Allies 30 days to get the Germans off Sicily. And they did. I mean, Patton along the north shore of, of Sicily moved the Germans right up toward Messina and they escaped across the Strait of Messina. It took 30 days to mop it up. That's where Plunkett first, you know, engaged in, in battle. And then from there on, pretty much from, from July 10th, 1943, right up through Anzio, all the way through Omaha Beach, uh, they, were, they were in the thick of it. You, you talk about one story where they played a pivotal role in defending, there was like, a, I guess, a British hospital ship got bombed and the Plunkett was there to defend. What, what happened there? What was going on there? Yeah, that, that was the HMS Newfoundland. It was a British hospital ship and there happened to be 100 or so American nurses. They had been going into Salerno a couple of days after the landing. Frank Gallagher was, was part of that. He's ashore now getting his first taste of combat in September of 1943. So, so Sicily was July, early July. Now we're up to September. The Allies are now, for the first time, they have, they have gone ashore on mainland Europe at Salerno, which is south of Rome, south of the Amalfi Coast. And the Newfoundland now is, is coming in to, to deliver this contingent of nurses who were excited to be the first nurses uh, to come ashore during the Second World War. But it was too hot. In fact, the, the landings at Salerno were so bad. Frank Gallagher used to say, we had panzer tanks right down in the sand with us. It was so bad. And it was so bad that beachhead and so hot for a week that there was a chance that that the Germans were going to throw the, throw the Allies right offshore uh, back out to sea. And Navy commanders were beside themselves because they said, you know, we have never done this. You guys need to, you guys need to do what you do to, to maintain that beachhead. And so Mark Clark, he was uh, the commander of that army. He, he did what he could. They avoided disaster. In the meantime, the Newfoundland, which was about to land, moves way back offshore and it gets bombed by the Germans. You know, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to bomb a hospital ship, right? The thing's got... It's lit up like a Christmas tree at night with all kinds of streamers and lights. There's a huge red cross on the, on the roof of the deck houses. So there's no mistaking it. But the, the Luftwaffe dropped one on it, killed a couple of dozen people. None of the nurses, but the thing is burning. And it's full of medical supplies that are, that are needed because, you know, the, the beachhead, the hold on the beachhead is, is still tenuous. And so Plunkett is one of the ships that, that responds to this crisis. And they, 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 they steam out to, to, to where the Newfoundland is and, and they do, you know, they, they spend 24 hours fighting that fire. Jim Feltz, he says he was the first, he was on a, a repair party. It was his job on the Plunkett, you know, when 
a bomb struck or a torpedo struck or there was fire. The repair parties were the guys that, the men that, that got to it. And so Jim and a dozen men jumped over onto the plunket and they fought that fire for in, in, in you know, bouts of like an hour and a half. And then they'd pull them all back aboard the, the plunket and the ship would circle around. So there was, there was a lot of that happening. And finally they just decided that the ship couldn't be saved and they had to scuttle it. So they, you know, Ken Brown, who was the, the gun boss on the ship, uh, who commanded the ship's battery of guns, he put 40-some-odd five-inch shells into the hull of that hospital ship until it sunk. So so there were incidents like that, you know, all the way from the summer now. It just it, it was almost like a whirlpool. It just kept getting hotter and hotter for these guys. The Newfoundland was one, and the, the buck was another, another destroyer that was torpedoed. When everything leads up to this epic battle off the coast of Anzio, Italy. So, and it was like, it was 24 minutes long, lots of damage. What, what, what led up to this battle with that the plunk it was involved in? Right. So there, so the allies are ashore now and they've been ashore in September. They came ashore at Salerno, but they can't get up the Italian boot. If you picture Italy, think about, you know, a line that's cut right across the middle of of Italy. That was the Gustav line. The Germans had fortified this line, knowing that the Allies eventually would sweep up from the south. And they had their guns on the high ground, especially at Monte Cassino, which is sort of famous for, because the Allies couldn't get past it. There was the the Rapido and the Volturno rivers. The, The Allies were trying to punch up either of these river valleys to get to Rome, but they couldn't do it. So Monte Cassino was too tough. So so Winston Churchill, who is famous for wading into among his generals on a tactical level, he decides that uh, what they need to do is an end run around Monte Cassino, land the allies at Anzio in Nettuno, it's two beaches, and then they can just make the final push up to uh, Rome, which was 25 miles to the north. It sounded great in conception, except that the Germans anticipated the Allies landing there because they were the natural, they were two stunning beaches, perfect for amphibious landings. And so they anticipated it. They got ready. And when the Allies came, they plugged them for five months. They they couldn't move off that beachhead. And by beachhead, I mean a swath of land that was maybe five miles deep and 10 miles wide. The Allies couldn't break out of that. So, so that was the uh, that was the the plan. The run up to Anzio was uh, was a way to sort of do an end run around the Monte Cassino, and uh, it just it didn't work out as planned. And so, what was the Plunkett's role in all this? Why were they there? So, the Plunkett was part of the task force. There were thirty six thousand men that were landed at Anzio Natuno, and when you're moving that many men in landing craft, which is, you know, we've all seen Saving Private Ryan have a picture in our minds of those uh, Higgins boats and the uh, the landing craft with the the bow that flaps down. It's it's the, the destroyer's job. It was the Plunkett's job to guard the fringes of this task force, this convoy of landing craft that were moving north. They would they move north along the coast of, of Italy, and then they made this, this huge right turn and went in for the landing. So it was the Plunkett's job you know, to, to mine the fringes of that convoy against incursion by E-boats, which are kind of like PT boats, those were the German boats, and submarines. And, and they were successful. Over the first two days, the men in the plunket describe it as a, as a milk run. You know, that landing was nothing like Salerno. Everybody got ashore. They were going to be stuck for five months, but they all got ashore. It was two days after that landing. That's when, that's when things really turned south for the plunket. And what happened? Was it who? Like, what were the Germans doing? Were they did they bring in ships? Was it airplanes? What happened? Yeah, there were planes. You know, the Germans would would um, you know there were there were five 
amphibious landings during the Second World War in Europe. There was Salerno, Anzio, I guess now was the second, third, actually, after Sicily. So when the Germans would come in on one of these amphibious landings, what they do is they'd these squadrons, these waves of bombers would come in over a roadstead, the harbor where the, 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 ship, the ships would call in, and they'd pick a target and um, they'd drop their stick of bombs on, um, on, on targets that came in their sights. These individual ships, you know, would be in the thick of it for three or four minutes and then a squadron would sweep by, another squadron, squadron would sweep in and they'd go after some other ships. But at Anzio, Something it, it, they changed strategy a little bit in early 1944. This was something that the Navy uh, was writing about in, in these magazines uh, in early 1944. They decided that they were going to focus on a on a single ship, and and for whatever reason, the Plunkett was on a picket line uh, about five miles off the coast of Anzio, just doing routine patrol two days after the landings. And the first of what became 12 or 14 German bombers swept in on the Plunkett and they, they harried them for, for the next 19 minutes and then five additional minutes. So that was, that was the Plunkett situation at the beginning of this, this battle. And what were the, the roles that you know, some of the guys that you followed, Ken Brown, Jim Felch, your uncle, what were they doing during this battle? Were they manning guns? What were, what were, what were they, how were they responding Sure. Well, Ken Brown is, is the gunnery officer on the Plunkett, also known as the gun boss. And, and his job was to command the, the four or five inch guns, the 1.1 inch guns, as well as the 20 millimeter guns around the perimeter of the ship, except that, you know, with the 20 millimeter, it was more a matter of if you see him, shoot him. With the five inch guns, they were controlled. They had, you know, primitive analog computers um, in the combat information center behind the bridge. And so, Ken, with five other men, was in this little compartment uh, shaped like a bread box, seemed no bigger than, a, than, a, than a, an old telephone booth at the highest part of the ship. There are six of them squeezed in there, hatches, so they're popping in and out in the midst of the battle, and they are, they are tracking these incoming planes. And it's their job to communicate with the Combat Information Center and with each of the, the gun bosses who are in the, the, the four big the four mounts or turrets that run up the center line of the ship. So, so that's, that's Ken's role during this battle. He's coordinating these, these four or five inch guns and the 1.1 inch gun and the six other men, the, the 20 millimeters are all manned by, by these gunners. My great uncle, John Gallagher was, was on the, I was a gunner on one of the 20 millimeter guns. It was behind the, the number two stack on the starboard side of the ship. And, and those guys um, would go after the torpedo bombers. You couldn't get to the dive bombers with a 20 millimeter. The, the torpedo bombers swept in close. Some of the men even reported that they could make eye contact with the pilots on, on the torpedo bombers. They were that close. So that's where the, the 20 millimeter guys are going after those planes. Ken Brown is going after the, uh, the dive bombers and, uh, and the, uh, the high-flying bombers that are dropping uh, glide bombs at them. Jim Feltz, meanwhile, is in the fire room. He had been on the midship repair party until two weeks earlier, but he became, he was really good at his job as an engineer. And, uh, and so at battle stations now, at general quarters, his job was, was in the fire room. And, and he's down in there listening to requests for speed changes from the bridge as Burke is navigating the ship in the midst of this battle, you know, he's calling for speed changes and course changes. And it's Jim's job, along with the other men working in his fire room, in the fire room, that's where they had the boilers that would heat the water to make the steam to drive the ship. And, uh, and so that's what he's doing during the midst of this battle. And Jim is counting as each of these bombs falls 
in the ship shutters because they are getting pummeled from, you know, a dozen planes swarming them. But Jim at one point decides, I got to go up there and help out. Like, I'm not doing anything down here. So he kind of breaks protocol (laughs) to go. He does. He does. He's, uh, you know, 19 minutes into this battle, they have dodged uh, a couple of torpedoes. Two is what some of the accounts say, but the action reports say one. Action reports say there were, I think, eight bombs that they they missed, including a couple of these radio-controlled dive bombs. But 19 minutes into this, into this battle, one of the dive bombers uh, drops his stick of bombs, and the fifth bomb in that stick hits the ship square on the 1.1-inch gun mount where you have a dozen men working. That explosion obliterated 29 men or were listed as missing. They were killed, but uh, it was going to take a year for them to be officially recognized as such. And that explosion, the ship was in flames. And when that bomb hit, Jim was in the fire room and he said it was as if a hand had come down from the deep and it had taken the ship and it had pulled the ship down. I mean, he distinctly remember that. And I, I talked to one other man who, who said the exact same thing, that, that experience of the ship being pulled straight down. And it came back to the surface. And now Jim is, is up on the, the fire room on a destroyer, his two levels, and he's on the top watch on the, 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 the grate on the second level. And the chief petty officer says, uh, take a look at what happened, find out what happened. And uh, he didn't mean for Jim to leave the fire room, but Jim throws open the hatch of the fire room and he's up there. He sticks his head out. The ship is in flames. It's a wall of flames in the middle of the ship, right behind the number two stack. And, uh, and he is, is watching this conflagration and, and he's looking for men uh, who are fighting this fire who should have jumped too. And it occurs to him then that, you know, the midship repair party is not fighting the fire because maybe they're not there anymore. And it's true. Nine of the 10 men on that repair party were killed. So he does what he's not supposed to do. Uh, one of the things in the Navy that they, they tell you is you, you don't leave your battle station. But he didn't see any choice but to jump out and to go for what he called a, it's a handy billy pump. This portable pump weighs about 100 pounds. He's trying to pull it out of this locker. And this other sailor, he never remembered who the man was, came and helped him. The two of them grabbed this handy billy pump on either side. They've got uh, you know a hose that they throw over the side of the ship. They, they rev this thing up, almost like a lawnmower. You start the thing, and they get water on that fire. He's 18 years old. His ship is burning. They know that if that fire gets to the magazines, that the whole thing is going to go up. They saw it happen with the Rowan. They saw it happen with the Maddox. They knew that it was, it was only a matter of time. And so Jim is fighting that fire. And, uh, and Burke is dispatching, you know, the forward repair party and other junior officers. They're making their way back now in the, uh, in the wake of this bomb hit to do what can be done. The depth charges need to be set on safe. They should have been set on safe, but you needed to make sure. And, and so there were all these things all of a sudden that were happening to ensure the survival of the ship. All right. So the last 24 minutes, uh, 29 men were killed. Uh, did Americans back home know about this battle? Did it make the papers? It, it, they, they, it, they found out soon enough um, because, you know, I think it was three days after the, um, um, after the, the, the battle, the, uh, the notice came to my great-grandmother that her, her son had been killed. Um, Frank Gallagher was on the beach when this was going on, and, and he saw the plunket hit. He said he did his whole life. I have no reason not to believe him. It just seems so unbelievable that, that he could have seen that. He 
Frank carried a, a camera during the war and he took this one picture at Anzio of the anti-aircraft fire going up on the beach because at the same time that this swarm of planes had come down on Plunkett, there were dozens and dozens, maybe as many as a hundred Luftwaffe bombers that had finally, you know, hit the beachhead at Anzio and they were coming down on the beachhead. So it was just, it was all evening long. And Frank saw the Plunkett hit and, and, and saw that it was a significant explosion, didn't know what had happened, of course, wasn't going to be able to find out what happened while he was there and, and only found out months later that his brother had been killed on the ship. John survived the initial blast and lived for six hours and, and had some pretty interesting things to say before he died. But uh, but that was how the Americans at home did find out uh, several days after uh, after the after the battle. And how old was your uncle John when he died? He was, um, let's see, he's born in 1916. This was 44, so he was 27 years old. I think he was going to turn 27, 28 that year. So, yeah, 27 years old. Did he have a family, like wife, kids? He did not. And, yeah. uh, you know, he was, uh, he was single. Frank was single. John had, uh, he was, uh, he was uh, his correspondence was going um, with this, this woman that I was never able to find out anything about. And I discovered these six letters right at the end of the writing of this book and realized that he had this relationship that was moving along. Frank did too. Frank was going to end up marrying the woman that he was corresponding with during the war. And I kind of think that John might have, the same thing might have happened to him as well. So he didn't lose his family, uh, but uh, his family lost him. Yeah. So, I mean, the Thanks to the actions of these guys, the Plunkett was able to be salvaged. They were able to fix it up. They continued to serve throughout World War II. What other roles did it play there? Well, you're right. It it uh, it did survive. It limped into Palermo. They buried their dead in a temporary. There were 24 dead. They were covered. They they buried them there in Palermo in a temporary graveyard. And then the Plunkett steamed back to the United States to Brooklyn to the Navy Yard. At, at I think they were they were only able to move at 11 knots because they lost one of their screws, one of their propellers, and uh, and one of their engines. One of the engine rooms was completely obliterated. But they, they get back to Brooklyn and, and all of the stuff is waiting for them dockside. You know, the new stack, uh, the, the new engine, the propellers, the shafts, everything. And it's fitted out and they steam back in May once again to, to the UK and, and they begin massing for the invasion at Normandy. This was going to be the fourth European invasion of the war. And you know, Plunkett was the only ship that the Navy knows of that, that was in on every invasion in North Africa and all five in the European mainland. And what's kind of interesting about uh, what happened to the Plunkett in the Normandy invasion is about a few days before they were able to set off, a VIP comes aboard the ship. He's a chief petty officer in the Navy, but he's also John Ford the famous film director that everybody knows because they'd all seen the movies, you know, how green was my, my Valley and the informer and John Ford at that time cut a pretty big swath. He hung out with the enlisted men a lot. And, and they knew that if the likes of John Ford was on their ship, he had produced a documentary during the war midway that, that uh, was received uh, with great acclaim. They, they knew that they were heading into something uh, significant and sure enough, you know, when the allies went into Normandy, when they went into Omaha Beach, the Plunkett was uh, was part of that amphibious landing. They were at the rear of the convoy, and somehow things got turned around, and pretty soon they found themselves at the head of the convoy, so close to the shore, in fact, that they were all but scraping sand in the hull. They're hulling the sand of the of the uh, of the, the beach. So, 
So that was its its next big moment was the were the D Day landings. They went on later to uh, to the bombardment of Cherbourg that opened up a port. The Allies until that time were landing all the material on on the beaches and in these you know these harbors. But once they 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 got to Cherbourg, they were able to bombard the Germans into submission there. That port opened up, and now here we go. You know, now the land war in in Europe begins. And what happened to the Plunkett after the war? Like when did it? Did it keep? Did it serve in the Korean War at all? Um, when was it retired? No, it was decommissioned in, in 1946. They uh, they went on from Omaha, Normandy, to uh, the invasion of southern France, and then they they headed over to Japan. Like they hadn't done enough in Europe, so it was time for Japan. But they got by the time they got to Japan, the war was over. Jim Phelps was ready to go home. It, it comes into port in South Carolina. He got his papers, and, and to this day, he regrets that he said, "I got those papers. I still have this thing going with Betty." And he said, "I didn't say goodbye to anybody." I got my papers, I got off that ship, and I got on a bus and I went home. <laughs> the Plunkett was decommissioned in uh, 1946, and then it was reactivated in the 1950s and, and given to the Taiwanese. And it was used as a destroyer in the, in the Navy of Taiwan until early 1970s when it was scrapped. Well, let's talk about what happened to the men. So what happened to, let's talk about Ken Brown. What happened to Ken Brown after the war? Well, Ken, he got command right after right after the war. He he was commended, you know, the work that he did on on the Plunkett at Anzio. They took out uh, three, maybe four planes at Anzio, and uh, and uh, and Ken was a big part of the success that the Plunkett had. And until that point, he and Burke had this really fractious relationship. And he said everything between me and Burke changed after Anzio. It was just completely different. He got command of a destroyer escort, which is sort of like a smaller version of a destroyer, right after the war. He was appointed the number two man at the Naval Academy in 1960s, in the 1960s. But, but Ken was a guy who never, he was outspoken. He always, if he saw something, he said something. He could never keep quiet about things that he thought weren't right. He didn't like hazing at the Naval Academy. And he tried to end it. And for his sins, they sent him to Vietnam. Um, <laughs> the Navy was not prepared to end a tradition like that. And, uh, and so they, they sent him to, to Vietnam. He was on, uh, he was naval attache to General Westmoreland staff for a year and then the commander of a squadron for another year. Then he was, as he said, put out to pasture commanding ROTC until, uh, for four years in the late sixties, early seventies when he retired after 30 years. So that was, that was Ken Brown and, and, and Burke's career. He took command of a, a cruiser, the Des Moines, in, uh, in the 1950s. Just small world moment. My father's brother, David, was on that uh, uh, cruiser when, when Burke was commander. I didn't know that until I'd seen these records. But, uh, but that was Burke. He, um, if they gave you a cruiser in the Navy, they were going to make you an admiral. And he retired as a, as a rear admiral in, uh, in 1965 or six, and died shortly thereafter of emphysema. He received the Navy Cross um, for uh, what he had done at Anzio, and even the Navy Cross might not have been enough for, for the brilliance of, of what he had done there. Jim Feltz, you know, jumps on a bus that breaks down en route to St. Louis, sticks out his thumb and uh, gets a ride and goes home, goes right to Betty's house, knocks on the door, and he remembered the first two words that he said to her when she opened the door. Surprise, surprise, he said she didn't know he was coming. They got married. He started dancing. He, uh, he launched a, a truck's part business that uh, that thrived for a number of years he kept a dozen men employed uh, for all those years and poor jim he uh, he had to bury his wife and then he had to bury each of his three sons 
but I talked to him yesterday and he's doing well. So that's them at the end of the war. And you got, as you talk to Ken and Jim in particular, I mean, how were you able to get a feel of how that experience, particularly at Anzio, how it, inf- you know, it affected them or influenced them for the rest of their lives? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I, I, I asked Ken Brown once, I, I asked him this question about Anzio and how it had rippled through the rest of his life. I mean, once I'd done all my research and saw what they had done there, I, I asked him if, if it was the defining experience of his life. And I, he had this great deep granite voice. He was a slight man, maybe five eight, five nine, and uh, not very heavy, but he had the voice of a man who was twice as large. It was disconcerting uh, and really interesting. And he says, no, Jim, he says, uh, I think, you know, if, if I were to talk about the defining experience of my life, it would be getting command of that that destroyer escort. Or, or, and then he said, no, maybe it was when I, they, I was a squadron commander picking up down pilots in Vietnam. Then he thought of something else. And he avoided that, that, that one thing. But it occurred to me after Ken died that sometimes, you know, we, we, we can't articulate or define what it is. You know, if any of us are asked, what is the defining experience of your life? How can we know? But when it came time to, to, to bury Ken Brown two years ago at the age of 98, there was one, there was the name of only one ship on his, on his gravestone, and it was the Plunkett. And, you know, there was only one job recognized on that same stone, and it was Gun Boss. So, I think that, you know, that day rippled through the rest of his life. Um, and, and it did that for all of the men. You know, I, I think that the destroyer is a little bit of a different ship in the Navy. There were only 250 men on that ship. And, and there is that, that anthropologists talk about Dunbar's number, you know, the, the, the number of, of people with whom we can maintain a, a stable social relationship. I mean, this goes back to early man, and they say that, you know, that number is about 150 men. You know, there's 150 people that you'd feel comfortable inviting to go out um, with a drink. That's, that's the most that we can maintain. And, and you have, you're close to that on, on a destroyer. So there's, there's this thing that they had, these, dis, these men on a destroyer, that was a little bit like family. You know, they had that kind of intimacy. And then you had, you had the shared experience of, of war, uh, the most cataclysmic event of, of the 20th century, maybe of all time. And then you had what happened to them at Anzio. You know, that bomb really galvanized this connection with them. And, and I think those three things together forged something that it's just hard to imagine, those of us who haven't been through it. And it became, it became for many of them, I think, the defining experience of, of their lives. And even as they drifted into the rest of their lives, you know, they, they, they were going to lose touch, but, but they never lost grip. And, and I saw that even in these men in, into their 90s, you know, just how ardently they held to the memories of these men that they'd lost and with whom they were still in, in contact. And as, you know, spending so much time looking into their stories, talking to, you know, J- Jim and, and Ken, what did you take away personally? Like what did you learn anything about what it means to be a man, like talking to these guys and interacting with them? Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's a question that, that would, would percolate in me as I was going through this. I, I, I did not wear the uniform. I, I've never been through anything like that. But I think all of us, as we're coming up as young men, you know, we're wondering, how would I be? You know, that eternal question that never really leaves you, maybe. <laughs> and, um, and, and, I, I remember asking that of Ken and of Jim, you know, how did you get through this? You know, because from, from where we sit today, we look back on this thing, you know, this cataclysm. I mean, 2,000 years ago, you know, what, what was it? The Trojan War was 3,000 years ago. We're still talking about that war 
you know, one can only imagine how long we're going to be talking about this one. And, and they were part of that. And, and how did you get through that? While they're in the thick of it, they don't recognize it for, for what we do when we have, you know, the, the luxury of, of, uh, of time to look back and perspective. And, and they both would say the same thing, you know, uh, about what it was like to be out on the deck of a ship when, you know, they were under aerial assault, you know, when there were, was plenty of opportunity for fear. How did you get through that? And, and they both said the same thing. And they said, the, they said it the same way all the time. Jim would always talk about it as work. He said, you know, it was just a matter of doing your job. You didn't have time to be afraid. You only, we were trained. We knew what we had to do and we went and we did it. And that's how we got through every day by, by staying committed to the work, to the job. They didn't think of it as combat. They thought about what they had done is, is, is doing their job. And, and it might be, you know, that euphemism, maybe how, how we can sometimes get through things. Um, you know, don't, uh, we, we don't extrapolate and provide too much perspective. We stay focused. We do what we're supposed to do. And that's how we get through. Yeah, that idea. I mean, you ask a lot of World War II veterans, the ones that are still around, but they would say the same thing. You know, how did you do it? Like, well, I'm just, I just did my job. And I think that it influenced the way, I mean, their humility about the war. You know, a lot of these guys, they did these amazing things. They wouldn't talk about it. And you ask them, man, how did you do that? Amazing thing. Well, they just said, I was just doing my job. That was it. They, That's right. That was it. Yeah. It just seems so ordinary to them. I mean, it, we look at it as, as completely extraordinary, but, you know, they were just doing what they had to do. Well, Jim, uh, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, there are a lot of pictures at, at, at a website. Uh, the book has a website, ussplunkett.com. And there are lots of pictures up there. There are links to, to where the, the book can be sold. I think it's, it's independent bookstores, the, the national retailers. There is even up on that website, there's some video. And uh, I talked early on about that story that Frank Gallagher told. Well, in 1998, I sat down with him in a tape recorder and uh, I had Frank tell me that, that story. And, and that's up there in, with a, a little bit of video as well. So yeah, ussplunkett.com is about the best pivot point for, uh, for readers. Fantastic. Well, Jim Sullivan, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Brett. My guest today was Jim Sullivan. He's the author of the book, Unsinkable. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about the book at his website, unsinkableplunket.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash unsinkable, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing sharing the show with a friend or family member who you'd think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you to not only listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.